The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, would you open to Mark chapter 8? Mark chapter 8. One of the blessings that we experienced on vacation. Um, all three of our daughters have been baptized, given their lives to the Lord, and their youngest brother, our only son, Julian. He's six and a half. He's watched all this take place. We've talked about baptism a bunch, but we kind of assumed that because he's a boy and because he's so young, it would be some time before he was like ready to really commit his life to the Lord. But he's very uh, in- inquisitive and very serious. He's our, he's our, um, he's our data mining child. And um, so the second night we're on vacation, we're sitting around the dinner table and Julian looks up at me and randomly just goes, dad, how does the water make God come into your heart? I said, buddy, that's an amazing question. And I said, why do you ask that question? He goes, because I want God to be in my heart. And so we talked with him for, you know, a while. And this is just really what you want to do and what baptism is and all the things. And so the next morning, uh, the third day of our vacation, Julian gave his life to the Lord and he was baptized in the pool at the house. We were saying, isn't that amazing? What a blessing. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. We loved being able to share that together. And God is still doing his work in every single one of us and in our world, amen? So I want you to open to Mark chapter eight. I wasn't sure what to do with these few weeks. We have a really exciting new sermon series that's gonna start on September the 10th. It's gonna kind of get us ready to launch a team to go to our new Daytona Beach campus, which we're heading into this new world of multi-site church. And so that's gonna be interesting. And um, so we're gonna be really, really ramping up towards that and doing a lot of logistics. But in the weeks between now and then, I was kind of open-handedly asking the Lord what he wanted to do. And as I mentioned, for two weeks, I didn't think about it at all. And so we got back late on kind of middle of the night, Wednesday, and then recovered and unpacked. And then Thursday morning, I woke up and said, all right, Lord, uh, what do you wanna speak to Christ Church today and over the next few weeks? And he really just directed me to Mark's gospel. In my spirit, I felt like, okay, we we wanna look at Jesus and I want you to go to Mark's gospel. And I opened Mark's gospel and I started reading it, 16 chapters. I've read it lots and lots of times. It's a phenomenal book of the Bible and it just depicts Jesus and who he is and what he did for us in just incredible and beautiful ways. And so I start reading chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I'm loving all of this. I'm asking the Lord what he wants to speak. And I get to about chapter eight and I just experienced that, that kind of spotlight that the Holy Spirit sometimes will put on the scriptures. You ever have this where you're reading the Bible? and you're enjoying it, and it's making sense to you, and you're like, oh, that's so good. But then there's like something, a verse or a chapter or a story, and you're like, whoa, there's the Lord's like all over it. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you haven't experienced that, keep reading. And so you're like, oh, I'm like, all right, Lord, what's going on here? And so I start studying this, and the story was the feeding of the 4,000. And so I start reading this story, and I know it, but I want to read it and ask God, what do you want to speak to us all about it? And so I start seeing um, one of the beautiful things about Mark's gospel, it's, it's very, um, let's see, how do I put this? It's very, it moves, it's choppy. And so sometimes because it's choppy, it uses the word immediately like a hundred times. Immediately, Jesus did this. And then immediately this happened. And then immediately, it's like all over the place. And um, so you, it kind of gets this feeling like it's maybe like not very well composed because it's so abrupt, but it's actually brilliantly composed. So Mark uses so many literary tools and devices and he builds this story to really put all of the, 
all of the emphasis on who is Jesus. And that happens in chapter eight and verse 29, where Jesus starts asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Verse 27, 28. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of God. That's the center point of Mark's gospel. And it's the hinge. Everything before chapter eight and verse 29 leads up to who Jesus is. And then everything from verse 29 of chapter eight and forward reveals what that actually means because nobody knew. The disciples didn't know. The Pharisees didn't know. The Sadducees didn't know. Herod didn't know. Rome didn't know, the world didn't know what the Messiah would do or who the Messiah was. And so Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And what does that mean? That's what follows. And so I know, I know it's already a hot spot in terms of Mark's gospel, but as I started reading it and really saturating myself, what I realized when I got to see is there's this beautiful, it's called a chiasm. I don't know if you care about this at all, but it's where stories are aligned to go here, 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 here. And then it reflects backwards here, here, here. So you get this kind of big literary arrow going, this is the hot spot right here. And so if you're an English teacher, you know what I'm talking about. But Mark does that. And he uses these stories. But he not only does that, but he also brackets these stories to, to sandwich them together so that you see there's a connection between them. And so from chapter 7, verse 31, all the way through to chapter 9, verse 32, the stories kind of align down towards this declaration of Jesus as the Messiah and then expand out to what does that mean for us? And so for the next few weeks, we're gonna just hang out in this little section of scripture and we're gonna be looking to develop in this season a Jesus-centered vision. That's what Mark is about and that's what I feel like the Lord wants us to be focusing on. And we need this. We need this because um, all of us have vision, whether you, whether you think about vision or not, whether you're like a visionary person or whether you're just in the weeds day to day getting the things done, all of us have vision. Let me illustrate. Have you ever decided to like renovate a room in your house, like one of your kids' bedrooms or the family room, or you're gonna do a project and you're gonna do something cool on the porch or whatever? This is an HGTV generation. You guys, have you done this before? And then every, you start, everything starts to be about that. You're like, I'm renovating the family room. And then you're like, that's a cool color. You're in someone's house. You're like, I like that piece of art. And you're like, oh, that couch is so cool. That's the right shape. You know what I'm talking about? You start seeing the whole world through the vision, the lens of doing this project, right? The same thing happens when you're gonna buy a, a new car. You ever like, I'm gonna get a new car and I think I'm gonna get a Subaru. And you start looking online at Subarus and what color do you like and what model do you, can you afford and how old do you have to get it? And you stick shift or automatic. And then you leave your house and you're like, Subaru, 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 they're everywhere. Do you think the Subarus just magically appeared all of a sudden? They weren't there before? No, no, no. You see them because you've been mindful because you've got a vision for something that's in front of you. Now, we do this all the time, and so we have these, we, but we, we tend to live our life through these little series of short visions. And so sometimes they're exciting things like renovating a room or buying a new car. A lot of times they're things like conflict or loss or pain. And so you lost the job or you got fired or betrayed and all you can feel is the hurt of that and the pain of that and the fear of what will happen again. And everywhere you look, you only see evidence about that thing. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And so you can have this vision experience that's fun and, and exciting or you can have one that's very painful, but all of us are people of vision. And we do the same thing for pretty much everything. We find our little way of seeing the world, our little group of influencers, and then we begin to look out into the world. Everything gets shook up and sorted out, and we find ourselves falling into a category of ism, and then we have our enemies and the other opposing ism, and we experience anxiety, and we wonder what in the world is going to happen. And part of the reason I feel like this is an important sermon 
for this moment, a Jesus-centered vision, is that uh, our world is presenting for us these polarized versions, these polarized, polarized visions. And so we're in it, we're really, I mean, the, being on vacation and then coming back to see Maui is completely scorched and all these people have lost their lives and there's all this destruction and who did what and when were they supposed to and all this like political upheaval and indictments and investigations and corruption and there's every, everywhere you look, you're going, what is going on? Do you guys feel, you know what I'm talking about? And then you have to go, what is happening? And you come up with an answer and that answer becomes your lens. And then that lens becomes the thing by which you interpret everything and then judge all the people and everything gets shaken out. So you end up with globalists and nationalists and you end up with progressives and conservatives and you end up with all of these little isms and who, who you are and what's right becomes the solution to the answer. And these people become an obstacle to the problem. And then there's animosity and fighting and, and name calling. And it just becomes this tumultuous world that we all live in. And isn't it fun? We call it Facebook. Oftentimes we think we, f- we feel very clear, but the reality is, is that we just have a, a vision, a lens. And none of those lenses will lead you to where we need to go. The people that I'm listening to are debating, are we on the verge, the precipice of a revolt or reform? And I think the answer is neither of those things are gonna suffice. What our world needs is a revival. What our world needs is a transformation of human heart that ends up expressing a transformation of society in a way that's good for everybody. And that can't be legislated and that can't be imposed. And so what we need as the people of God is a Jesus-centered vision. We need to begin to see the world as it is through the lens of Jesus. Otherwise you end up cynical and judgmental and angry and anxious. And that is not God's purpose for you. So I don't know how much time we'll have today. It was interesting in the first service. I don't expect this one to be exactly like it, but I'd like to start reading through this section of Mark chapter seven, starting in verse 31 and through chapter eight. I don't think we'll get through to 26, which is where I'd hope to get, but that's okay because we're just going to kind of pick up where we left off next week. And I want to invite you to just start to begin to hang out in this passage of scripture for yourself. It's kind of short. It's just a series of, of eight stories. In the middle of this is Jesus' declaration of being the Christ. And I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to hear and to help us to see. Because it's easy for us to have a Christian version of this anxiety and to just be thinking about things like, where is this all going? And is this the end of the world? And when will Jesus come back? And we can just become isolationists and none of those things are the right move. Jesus wants us in the game, but we've got to have a, a vision of him. Before we just start reading in, in, uh, in Mark, though, I just want to direct your attention to Hebrews chapter two. The author of the letter of Hebrews got this because in the first century, there was opposition to being a Christian suddenly. And so a lot of Christians were like, well, we're kind of Jewish because we have a Jewish Messiah. And it was actually still legal and defensible to be Jewish. And there was some external pressure to go back to Judaism. And so a lot of the Christians were doing that. They were going, well, it's just easier to be a Jew. And, and so the author of the letter to the Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. He's better, he's superior. And so you don't go backwards, you have to go forward. And shrinking back is falling away. And so this is what this book is about. It's better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. But the author makes this really important note in Hebrews chapter two and verse eight. It says, it's referring to the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension as now that everything is in subjection to Jesus. He's the king. Isn't it good that Jesus is the king? 
Everybody else works for him. There is no higher office than king of the universe, and that is currently and perpetually held by Jesus. Somebody say amen. And so Hebrews 2, 8 and 9 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, God left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Isn't that the truth? Doesn't look like he's in charge. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me tell you what Mark is about. Mark is about God making good on all of his promises in sending Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, to be the substitution and the savior, not just of the Israelites, but of the world. And he did that in an unexpected way. He did that by laying down his life in death, becoming a servant to everyone, not coming to be served, Mark will tell us, but to be a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many, 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 many people. And I hope that you are one of them. I hope you catch a Jesus-centered vision for your life. I, be, I hope you start to see your house projects through a Jesus-centered vision and your car purchase through a Jesus-centered vision and your betrayal through a Jesus-centered vision and your involvement in this next season as a church through a Jesus-centered vision and your weirdo neighbor that votes different than you through a Jesus-centered vision and your Facebook friends that you currently have muted uh, through a Jesus-centered lens. This is what we need. Somebody say amen. And so I want to just present to you this kind of first half of the chiasm. It's kind of pointing down towards you are the Christ, the son of God. And here's the story. I'll just set this up for you. If you have your Bible open, you can kind of flip through and see the headings. But in chapter seven, verse 31 to 37, Jesus heals a deaf man. And then in chapter eight and verse one, Jesus feeds the 4,000. This is where the Holy Spirit was like, oh, right here. And then in verse 11 of chapter eight, the Pharisees arrive and demand a sign from Jesus. They get no sign. And then Jesus starts to warn the disciples about the influence of the Pharisees. Their lens, the Pharisees and the Herodians, their lens is, is cancerous. And if you, start to, if you start to believe what they're selling and what they're doing, it will give you a perspective of the world that is very, very dangerous. But they're confused because they don't know what he's talking about. And so there's a funny little conversation that happens there. And then in chapter eight, verses 22 to 26, Jesus heals a blind man. And so he starts by opening someone's ears so they can hear. And then he finishes by healing someone's eyes so they can see. Do you understand what he's doing here? He's going, you need to hear from me so that you can see through this, this vision. And that's what these stories are about. And Mark builds this very proactively and he uses Jesus' spit to do it. Isn't that gross? He does. He's gonna heal, Jesus is gonna heal a deaf man by spitting on his tongue and by sticking his fingers in his ears. This is wet willy Jesus, okay? <laughs> That's what's gonna happen. And then you're like, oh, that is really gross. And then Jesus is gonna do a bunch of stuff and say a bunch of things that only make sense when you get back to this next miracle where Jesus takes this blind man and spits in his eyes and rubs his eyes and then asks him, do you, what do you see now? And he goes, I, it's all fuzzy. I see men, but they're like trees walking. And then Jesus touches them again and then he can see clearly. And so Mark is getting something done here and it's about who is Jesus and what does that mean really? But he's also showing us a picture of who this Jesus is so that we can establish and experience a Jesus-centered vision. And so for whatever time we have today, I just want us to do this together. And so I want us to look, to look at Jesus. And so let's look at Mark chapter seven and starting in verse 31. 
Lord, would you just bless the reading of your word and help us to see what you intended us to see. Help us to hear what you intended us to hear. Would you do that for us, Holy Spirit? Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Mark seven thirty one. Uh, He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. I'll explain why this matters in a minute, but also Mark's gospel is arranged by Jesus's movements. And so it's all about Jesus goes here and then Jesus goes here and then Jesus goes here and then Jesus goes here. And then all of a sudden, whoo, Jesus is dead focused on Jerusalem and his own death. And so that's what Mark, that's like the structure Mark uses. And so you're gonna get Jesus moving around a lot. Jesus is in the boat, Jesus is out of the boat. Jesus is walking, Jesus is, it's just move, 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 move from here to here to here to here. Now you don't have to know where all these places are. When they matter, I'll explain why they're there. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. If you know some deaf people, then you know that for those who had hearing at some point and lost it, they know how to speak and remember, but they can't hear themselves speak. And sometimes it sounds like this. And so I've got a lot of friends who are deaf from the Conklin Center for the Blind and Multi-Handicapped. And I've been around lots of deaf people in the past. And so it's great when someone who had hearing and lost it and is still able to communicate because that is a lot, that's far superior than not being able to actually use your words. But this man has deafness and the speech impediment. And so his friends bring him to Jesus and they beg him to lay his hand on them. And I love this. Look at verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now this obviously is beginning to demonstrate Jesus's power over physical ailments. And he's demonstrating in real time what he's doing for the whole world spiritually by allowing everyone to spiritually hear. And so there's like a big picture analogy going on here. And then there's a small interaction in reality that's going on here. And I wanna look at both of them together. And I want you to see Jesus. I love this, that they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hands on him. There's no expectation that Jesus is gonna do for this man what Jesus does do for this man. In fact, this man isn't coming to Jesus himself. He's like, whatever, I'm out. But his friends are saying, please come with us to Jesus, please. And then when they get to Jesus, they're begging him, please, please, please do this. Do you see the terminology that's going on here? And so here's a man being brought along who is not expressing any personal faith of his own. And it just reminds me how important it is to reach out to those people who are different than you, who don't think the same things you think, who aren't living their lives in the course that you are living them and saying, would you just come with me and hear Jesus? Would you just come to church and hear a sermon? Would you come and experience the presence of God in worship? Would you come to a small group and listen to the conversations to the people that I'm living my life with? Would you come in to a dinner and would you just be a part of this community? Would you see something? Would you just expose yourself to something that might change your life forever? Isn't this the kind of people we ought to be? 
And this is the kind of friends this man had. But so they bring him to Jesus and then they just plead with Jesus because they, they don't know that he's gonna be willing to do it. But Jesus doesn't just do it. He gives him concierge service, okay? And Jesus pulls this guy away from the crowd and, and gives him complete and private attention. And even think about the physical descriptions. Here's this guy who's deaf. He cannot hear anything that's going on around him. And he kind of hear the voice of Jesus. And so Jesus looks at him and he sticks his fingers in his ears. Now, first time I read this, I thought, Jesus, you, this is weird. Like, I'm, I know, you just, you just don't put your fingers in people's ears. Like, I learned that in the sixth grade, okay? Like, that's... But, but it's not just Jesus breaking boundaries to be like ostentatious. In fact, the opposite is true. If Jesus wanted to draw attention to himself, he could have healed the man by a word in front of everybody else, couldn't he? If he wanted all the attention on Jesus, he could have done it very differently. But instead, he removes himself from the crowd, all the attention, and he gives this man his entire focus and looking deeply into his eyes, aware that he does not have the faculty of hearing, he engages the touch and he puts his fingers directly on the source of the problem. And this is who Jesus is. And every one of us who has a relationship with Jesus, we know this is what he's like. When Jesus sees you, he sees all of you. Jesus is never looking over your shoulder at what's going on behind you. Jesus is never checking his watch or his phone. Jesus is never, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. To encounter Jesus is to experience a personal and intimate and undivided connection. And when you present yourself to Jesus, that is what you get. And that's what this man experienced. And so Jesus puts his fingers in his ears and then he spits on his fingers and he grabs the man's tongue. Now that is grosser than sticking dry fingers into somebody's ears. And I had a really hard time with that. I'm going, Lord, what are you doing? And I think the disciples were also like, yikes. I don't, know, I don't know if you know this or not, but before germ theory existed, Jews were very focused on cleanliness. In fact, it comes up in Mark where Jesus and his disciples aren't ritualistically washing their hands and their arms and their pots and their bowls and all their stuff like all Jews would have because they were very concerned about cleanliness. They didn't want anything impure going on the inside of them, even though they didn't understand germs and sickness and all this stuff. And so that was a big deal to them. So not, Jesus is not only breaking kind of social norms that are normal, but like for Jews, that is like, yikes. Like, but why would he do that? Why would he do that? Think about this for a second. Just think about, I know you guys weren't planning to think about spit at church today, but, but just think about spit for a second, okay? Um, spit is very gross the further away you are from a person. It's a fact, it's an insult if a stranger spits on you, isn't it? But if you have a very, very intimate relationship, spit becomes less and less and less gross. Where are my happily married couples? Right? That doesn't bother you one bit, does it? You move a little bit away from that, that kissing you learned in French class, you move a little bit away from that. And, and what do you see all the time? You see moms and their babies wiping crusty oatmeal off their faces like it's no thing, right? Even moms with teenage daughters, you get like, oh, baby, you got some mascara coming here. A church made you cry. Come here. I mean, you get that for you. No problem. But like even on vacation, Evie had a little something funky happening right here on her shoulder, some food or something. I don't know what it was. Meredith, she goes, and just swipes her shoulder. And Evie was like, yeah, gross, get a napkin, you know? Because there's an intimacy connected to your saliva, isn't there? Isn't there? I mean, just, there is. And listen, this is what Jesus does. He will invade your space because he's looking for oneness with you. 
He's saying, there is no gap between you and me. It's probably still weird, but this is the expression. And the fact that he does it twice and that Mark pairs these things to get our attention is really important. And so Jesus breaks all the social norms. And then even, even notice it says in verse 34, looking up to heaven, he takes this sigh. And if you're this close to a, a deaf person who can't hear anything, he could see Jesus diaphragm expand and his face contort as he looks to heaven. He could feel the breath of Jesus through his sigh exhaled in front of him. Jesus is at least this close, right? And then he says, and this is in the text, Ephatha, which is a big sounding word. And if you don't know, if you don't know ancient languages, this is not Greek. It is not Hebrew. It might be Aramaic. It's most likely Syriac. And so Jesus being multilingual, having been raised in the north part of, of Israel where all the foreigners were and spending some time in Egypt and being around in Hebrew class and knowing Greek, Jesus probably knew four or five languages that he could talk with people in. He's looking at this man and he speaks in his language. You think about this guy's, the best he can do is read lips. You know, the Hebrew word for be opened is patak, which is like, blah, blah, blah. Like, good luck trying to figure that out from Mr. You don't, it doesn't, it looks exactly the same. But in Syriac, big, big movements. And so Jesus demonstrates his intimate love and connection and his power over all things that bind, over all things that destroy, over all things that hold back. And in verse 35, it says, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now that really happened and that really happened for this guy. And it does help us to see Jesus in his power, in his compassion, in his focus, in his intimacy. All these things matter. And they're all true for you. They're equally as true for you as they were for this man, though you have never seen Jesus face to face, though he has never given you a wet willy. But they are true for you. That's who Jesus is to you. Do you understand this? But Mark is also presenting this because metaphorically, all of us need an encounter with Jesus so that our ears can be miraculously opened. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And listen, without a miracle from God, none of us get this. It doesn't make sense. People share their, before you're a Christian, people share their faith. You're like, nice for you, weirdo. You remember this? You ever had this? Someone's like, let me tell you how I gave my life to Jesus. You're like, odd, odd person. Okay, moving on. There's no life happening at all, right? Remember trying to read the Bible before you had faith in Jesus? You ever, you ever cracked this book open when you had zero faith? You're like, this is Boring and also confusing and means nothing to me. So I'm not going to read it ever. You guys remember what this was like? Anybody? Do you ever try reading the Bible before faith in Jesus? Like, I can't put the thing down now, but it made zero sense until I met Jesus. Why? Because I needed a miracle to have my spiritual ears opened. I needed an enlightenment. I needed God to intervene so that I could even hear what he had to say so that I could experience this gift of faith. Do you know that? And not only that, that's where it starts. And then you need to be able to see, which is why Mark juxtaposes this, Jesus spitting on this guy who's deaf to Jesus spitting on this guy who's blind. That's where he's going. But before he gets there, Mark chapter eight, verses one to 10, here's what he says. So this is a new story and it's added on purpose. Listen, in those days, when again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. What's the feature of this story? How Jesus feels about people, okay? 
I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And isn't that always the go-to question? Impossible scenario. What are we going to do? And at least all the men go to how? You know, some of the women are like, oh, the people are hungry. Are the babies crying? How are people feeling? Is there anything we give them? Do you have a, a, cra- a cracker in your purse? Like that's some of the ladies, not all the ladies. Some of you are like men. You're just like, how, right? And there's always some of the men that are kind of like thinking about how everybody feels. But for the most part, it breaks down. The men are going, I, I, what's the plan? I do not care about how anybody feels until there's a plan, right? Aren't you glad that God made us different? But this is the disciples, all men. What do they do? How, how, how are we gonna feed these people? Now, this is a, a legitimate and rational question, but it's also one that you might go, why are you asking this question, you knucklehead? Because in chapter six, this just happened. There was 5,000 people. Everybody had been there all day. Jesus said, we should feed them. They said, we can't feed them. That would cost all this money. We don't have the money. Jesus says, what do you have? They had five loaves and two fish and Jesus blessed it and fed everybody. And there was 12 baskets of leftovers. That was chapter six. That was a page and a half ago. (laughs) And now we got new people, 4,000, less than 5,000, who've been there for three whole days, different scenario. Jesus doesn't want to send them home hungry so they don't faint on the way. And he says, we need to feed these people. Why did the disciples then say, how, how, how are we gonna do that, right? Because we think like, hey, you got Jesus. Hello, remember what just happened? Isn't that how we all think? And we read the scripture, that's the way we process it. But when we live life, we do the exact same thing they did. Remember the last time you had some crazy unexpected bill and you couldn't afford to pay it and you didn't know what was gonna happen and you thought everything was gonna fall apart and the world was gonna end and you were super stressed out and you didn't sleep and you told everybody and you prayed about it incessantly. Oh God, are you pleading? And then miraculously you get a check in the mail from some weird escrow refund that you weren't expecting and it's exactly the amount you need to the penny. Yay, praise report, yay. And then eight minutes later, you're like, hey, there's a problem over here. And you're like, how? We do the exact same thing, don't we? It can't be. Different number of people, different number of days, different number of loaves. I don't know. Uh. You see the, f- the faithlessness that's happening here? And it's just like, we all kind of tend to do the exact same thing. And that's part of the story. And it is funny. But what does Jesus say? He says, how many loaves do you have? And this time they have more. So you should be thinking, oh, a thousand less people, two more loaves. We should be doing all right. They said seven, and he directed the crowd to sit down, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, so 12 last time, only seven this time, interesting, God math, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately they got into the boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Dalmanutha. Why does Mark tell this story here, and with no other interaction except that the disciples made this faithless move? Why does that happen? Here's why. Because in Mark chapter 11, verse 21, the Pharisees show up and begin to argue with Jesus, and they demand, uh, verse 11 tells us, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. So they're saying, okay, We're here, 
you need to prove it to us that you're the Messiah. And we want you to do it in this way with a sign in the heavens. We want a meteor, shooting star. Do it. Jesus, again, sighs deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. Verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. Okay, so Jesus just did a miracle, seven baskets of bread. Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, everybody gets in the boat, and the disciples all had a case of not my job, okay? So you have 12 disciples, seven baskets of bread, everybody's like, cool trick, Jesus, and they get in the boat, and nobody brought a basket of bread onto the boat, okay? Now, this is funny. What's more funny to me is that they had one loaf of bread, which means one of the disciples was like, well, I'm not getting the bread. He's not getting the bread. Well, I got to eat. So <laughs> they just stuck one in there. And so one loaf of bread makes it on the boat. And at some point, this news becomes known to the rest of the disciples. And they're like, he's going to be so mad. He made all that bread and we wasted it. We didn't bring any bread. And so Jesus starts to warn them, which we won't have time to talk about this today. We'll do this next week. He says, this is very serious, Jesus. He goes, watch out. Be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herod. And as soon as they hear leaven, they're like, he knows about the bread. We are in so much trouble. And so Jesus interrupts them. He goes, he goes um, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Verse 17. And then this is the bracket that matters. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? He's gonna end this little saying in verse 21 with the same question. Are your hearts hardened? He knew the Pharisees' hearts were hardened. The plan of God was for the Messiah to be rejected and for that to happen. There's no breakthrough for the leaders. The leaders are gonna turn on Jesus, betray Jesus, kill Jesus. That's happening. Jesus knows that's part of the reason he's sighing deeply before, but he's asking the disciples, are you with this proximity to me, with all the things that I've done, all the things you've seen, all the things that I've told you, are your, are your hearts hardened? And then he says this, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And then he goes, and do you not remember? And this is why we need a Jesus-centered vision because we forget so quickly. We gotta wake up to Jesus every day to be reminded of who our savior is, who our provider is, who our miracle worker is, who our God is, what kind of world we live in, who the king of the universe is, who, who, who is in control of all things, who is, who, is, who is facilitating the world to bring about your spiritual best. Why? We need a Jesus-centered vision. Why? Because we very quickly forget. And so Jesus draws their attention back to the juxtaposition between these two miracles, chapter six and the one that just happened. Look what he said. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Bible scholars, 12. And the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Bible scholars, seven. And then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, what's going on here with these numbers? Because just random crowd, 5,000 people. It's 5,000 men, it's probably 15, 20,000 humans because the women and children weren't counted. That's too hard. 4,000 over here, different group of people, ethnic change, geographic change. We got five loaves. That's just what happened to be available. Somebody had a Lunchable. Seven loaves over here, just random, different number. None of those things Jesus controls, but what he does control is how many baskets of leftovers there is, doesn't he? Part of his miracle is how much leftovers there were. And in the first miracle, how many baskets? 
How many disciples? What's that mean? Every disciple is carrying a basket. And then the 4,000, just a few days or weeks later, how many baskets? Seven. What does that mean? It means five disciples didn't have to carry a basket. That's all. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, yes, seven, seven is the number for fullness. Seven is the number for completion. Jesus is communicating with leftover bread. When you have a Jesus-centered vision, you will walk in this knowledge. There's enough for you. There's enough for everybody. We live in this world that is so fixated on a poverty mentality, on a, there's only so much resources and we all have to get our peace, which means everybody else is your enemy. And if they get, then you don't. And it, it puts us into this spiral of animosity and of greed and of fear and of anxiety. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way the world that I made works. The world that I made means when you share what you have, I will make more than enough, more than enough for you and more than enough for everyone. Do you see this? Jesus is saying, look, you don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to worry about everything you need. And they didn't even know what they really needed. Did they really need bread? I mean, yeah, they were hungry, but is that what they really needed? Jesus did not come to give bread to 9,000 people one time or on two events. Jesus came to be the bread of life for all people to make it through the transition of death into the presence of God and have life with him forever. That's who the Messiah is. That's what this passage is about. Jesus is merely demonstrating that. And now he wants you to have a Jesus-centered vision in your life so that you know, no matter what I face, there is more than enough for me. Isn't that a good way to live your life? That is the only, listen, this is the only way that you can live generously because the world will tell you and your heart will tell you, I will give when I have more because when I have more than enough, I will share from my surplus. You know what the problem is? You will never have more than enough. You know why? Because only other people are rich. Did you know that? You'll never be rich. Only other people will be rich. You know who those people are? The ones richer than you. And if you think you've got to take care of you before you take care of other people, you're missing the Jesus math. You're missing the fact that he's saying, you trust me that I've got you and you share what you've got. Think about who gave up those seven loaves. You ever had seven loaves? You're like, I'm the only one prepared for this event. <laughs> I've got four hungry children right here. I came prepared, these people? And you want me to give you my seven loaves? Imagine, I bet that's the person who after this whole thing was over realized, oh, those disciples left all seven baskets over here. Look at that, they didn't even take, didn't even take one of them. You know? Why? Because when Jesus is involved, there's enough for you. There's enough for everybody. And we need this perspective because we're going into a season as a church in this, just, this little part of the world where we are seeking to do more than is humanly possible. We're trying to be one church in two locations. We're trying to be ministering to people in neighborhoods we don't even know. We're, we're trying to see people's lives transformed. We're trying, to see, we're trying to bring people to Jesus so that he can unplug their ears and open their eyes. That's where we're heading. Why? And our faith is not that we have the strategy, we have the ability, we have the resources. Our faith is a Jesus-centered vision. We know if we can bring them to Jesus, he can do a miracle so that they can hear his voice. And when they hear his voice, they will come to life and they will begin to see clear and clear the more that they walk with him. He is faithful and there is enough. Do you not yet understand? Listen, every, every, everything else that's pushed on you uh, will we'll just leave you anxious and angry. Whether it's CNN or Fox News or whatever's non-traditional 
media that you're imbibing, whatever vision that's being presented to you is gonna leave you angry and anxious. But a Jesus-centered vision will leave you peaceful, full, generous, and positioned to share. This is what we need, amen? I'm sure of it. I'm sure, sure, sure that there are some of you who are present who know some things about God, maybe a lot of things, and you've been in proximity to this for a long time. But the miracle that I'm talking about, that this picture kind of starts describing, is that when you come to Jesus, he opens your ears. And when sermons like this are preached and Jesus is lifted up, a miracle happens. It starts to make sense when it never made sense. It starts to feel true when it used to be filled with doubt and cynicism and skepticism. And that is a miracle of God. And if that is happening in your heart right now, if in your mind, in your heart, you're going, this is the most true thing I've ever heard. And I have lots of questions, but I'm feeling this burden to receive this. That is the gift of faith. Do you hear me? And Jesus did a miracle to unstop your ears spiritually and to loosen your tongue. But what he's after is for you to receive that word and to respond by giving him your everything, by going, all right, I don't know you well, but I know that you're in charge and I'm not. I know that I've got problems and you're the solution. And so with your now loose tongue, this is, this is what faith looks like. Forgive me, help me, save me. I'm giving you my whole life. Simple words, sincere words to Jesus. When they're sincere, he will receive them and he will respond and he will deliver you and save you and forgive you. And this is what faith looks like. And so if you're here and that's happening for you, do not move on from this moment without responding in your own words and asking Jesus to be the savior, not of just the world, but of you and your life, knowing that there's more than enough. And for the rest of us, can we just commit, can we just commit to pursuing the Lord in a fashion that keeps us with a Jesus-centered vision? Can we do that? Can we start this week by just hanging out in Mark 7, 31 to 9, 32? Just reading it again and again and again and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us and just looking at Jesus and looking at the way that he encounters people and remembering that that's the same Jesus that I'm walking with too, amen? I just wanna pray for us. We always have music planned, but I kind of used up the time. But I wanna pray and I wanna ask God to water this word as it's deposited into our hearts. And so Lord, I just pray right now for every person present in this room, streaming online still. God, whatever it is that you're doing in us, Lord, we believe you are always doing a work to heal and to transform. Lord, I thank you that in the darkness of this world and in our brokenness, Lord, we're disconnected from you. We can't hear, we can't see, but you are the God who comes. You are the Messiah. You are the God who delivers. You are the God who saves. And so I just pray, Lord, for every one of us as we turn to the Lord, whether it's for the first time or freshly for a new vision, God, that you would remove the veil that keeps us from, that keeps us blinded and from seeing things as they are. Lord, we know that you are the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I just pray that you would set us free from the lies we believe, from the fears that hold us back, from the insufficiency and all, all, of, all of the veils, Lord and that you would transform us into the image of Christ a little bit more today and a little bit more tomorrow from one degree of glory to another. We know this is what you are committed to and what you're doing. And so we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to do your work in us. And God, I do pray that you would make us like those friends of the blind man, make us like those friends of the deaf man, that we would, that we would so value who you are and have so much confidence in what you can do that we would bring those who seem hopeless 
to an interaction with you, to an encounter with you. God, would you do this in our lives? And would you bring about the change you wanna bring in this world? Lord, we desperately need a revival. Lord, I pray for a revival and not a revolt. Lord, I pray for not a tweak to the system, but a transformation to the society. God, would you, would you move, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here with us. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday as we continue in Mark chapter eight.